Trump's favorite uh, kind of whipping boy in terms of uh, violence of Latin America is the MS-13 gang. Now, a lot of people seem not to realize that the MS, Mara Salvatrucha, Barrio de Esiocho, they were formed in the United States. They weren't formed in Mexico. They were formed in Los Angeles. The Esiocho is 18th Street in Los Angeles. Journalist Michael Dybert has called several countries, if not continents, home, and has written several books, including In the Shadow of St. Death, The Gulf Cartel and the Price of America's Drug War in Mexico, and most recently, Haiti Will Not Perish, a recent history which came out earlier this year. He's had articles published in The Guardian, Truth Dig, The Huffington Post, and Slate, among others. He currently resides in Lancaster, But as his resume clearly shows, staying put isn't exactly his game. He and I sat together on a relatively cool summer morning in the cemetery adjacent to St. James Church in the heart of Lancaster City, where he was born and the city he calls home for now. You grew up here in Lancaster. Correct. um, And you're back now for some inexplicable reason. and you've lived in um, a number of different places, including Haiti. And we'll talk, we can talk specifically about Haiti or, or other places, too. You know, one would think that being a world traveler of your ilk wouldn't necessarily want to come back to Lancaster, and yet here you are. Uh, and you're, you're looking for um, ways to tell Lancaster's story today, right, also. Because that's what you do. You tell stories about places. I mean, that's not to be reductionist, but that's kind of like a way of describing what you do because you're a journalist. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just... Give us the briefest sketch on your connection to Lancaster and where you went and then ultimately come to Haiti. And if we go from there, we'll go from there. How's that? It's, it's funny, actually, because as, as we're sitting here in this kind of old, uh, deliquescent colonial churchyard <laughs> with all of these kind of... Uh, you Chosen know, deliberately. Yeah, echoes of, of empire and stuff in it. Um, you know, I'm, I, I tend to think that while a lot of the places I've worked in over the years have... Uh, you know, their own kind of legacy of decayed, semi-decayed, or still vibrant colonialism in them, sure. uh, including especially Haiti, of course. Um, I think, you, you know, when you look at um, countries like, uh, say, Haiti or the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I've spent a lot of time, or Mexico, where I've reported on a lot, uh, one of the themes that runs through them is that, uh, and one of the themes that runs through my experience in, in reporting on them is, is, you know, after the the great tyrant or the great tyranny is gone, then what comes after mm-hmm. that? Because in 1986, you know, um, the Haitians got rid of uh, uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, the, the Duvalier dictatorship. Baby Doc. Yeah, Baby Doc. Uh, Baby Doc and his father, Papa Doc, Francois Duvalier. And that had ruled Haiti from, uh, you know, the late 50s until 86. And then in the late 90s, the Congolese uh, got rid of uh, Mobutu, who had ruled the country for over 30 years. And then, you know, the, the pre, the... The long governing party in Mexico was ousted finally in 2000, and you had two successive presidents, Vicente Fox and uh, Felipe Calderón from the PAN, which is an opposition party ruling Mexico. But, you know, it's very apparent to me, obviously, that in all of those countries, and and certainly here, something that I think about now is we're dealing with our own kind of mini-tyranny. It's mini? Is it mini? What comes... I mean, certainly, I think if one has 
kind of studied the ascendance of people like Aristide and Castro and Chavez and Erdogan and Putin, Trump really has a lot of echoes of those eras. I mean, he, and, and another thing that I think is really important that Haiti certainly taught me because uh, is that there's a certain point when the far left and the far right become the same political movement, the same illiberal political movement. And I think that's what we're seeing in the United States today to some degree as well. Far left and far right coming together? Well, I mean, <laughs> the far left seems more concerned about... You know, Hillary Clinton winning the Democratic uh, nomination over Bernie Sanders, who I voted for, by the way, Bernie Sanders in the primary in Florida, than they do about um, an openly racist, xenophobic, homophobic, confessed serial sexual predator president who's also seems like he's a Russian stooge and a spy. So that to me seems like a strange, uh, you know, a strange, a kind of misbalance of one's priorities. I um, met with you, I guess, a day after you returned to yeah. after being away for what 25 years More than, yeah about yeah, yeah and your first remark was wow this city actually for all of its you know, conservative sort of traditional foundation is pretty liberal yeah and you were moved by the um the you know the pride parade and the uh, signs of solidarity with uh, immigrants and refugees that you see in lots of windows and things like so that, that was a yeah. surprise to you that your town had had or not? I mean, the thing is, is when I was 18, like a lot of people are with their hometowns, I mean, I just, I mean, you know, the, it, I just wanted to get the hell out, basically, I mean, and see the world, you know, and the the town at that time, there was very little activity downtown, I mean, downtown was very, just kind of closed down, it was, I always say, you know, Lancaster in the early 90s when I was living here, it had kind of the perfect despair of a Bruce Springsteen song. Like that song, My Hometown, was very much Lancaster in the early 1990s. And, you know, I would say having been back now for uh, a month, about a month and change, the, my, my impressions are, that, yeah, there, there's been a great kind of, I would say, political liberal awakening in Lancaster City, which was very nice to see. Um, there's a sense of interconnectedness with other struggles in the U.S. And, and worldwide, which is nice to see. There's certainly more in terms of, for people like me, i.e., you know, kind of, for lack of a better word, you know, city intellectual type pretentious, I guess, you know. I mean, like, uh, there's, you know, nice, cool restaurants and cafes and coffee shops and stuff like that, none of which existed when I was here before. However, I mean, I would qualify that with saying one thing that has really shocked me is the amount of obvious uh, addicts, uh, homeless on the street, people suffering from opioid addiction, mm -hmm. uh, easily must be in the hundreds, I would say, and from what I've seen. you your own eyes. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, if you go to this church right down here, the community where, church... Where are we right now? Yeah. Just, just for the... St. James Church? Yeah. In a graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> if you go to the community church down on Orange Street, uh, they do, I think it's like some sort of soup kitchen or something yeah. once a week, and there'll be lines going around the block, and... Yeah. And people who are really on look to me to be in the last stages of addiction with kind of rotting skin and no teeth. And, and the sad thing is, is these people are in their 20s and 30s. I mean, they're not like people who have been on the streets for 30 years or something like that. So that, I mean, I, I had known about the opioid epidemic in Pennsylvania and Ohio and places like that. But to see it with this level of intensity really shocked me. And the other thing is, I would say also, is that the, the hardcore of poverty, because Lancaster is a very poor city in many ways, uh, in lots of neighborhoods on the south side and stuff. That hasn't changed a bit from when I was here. I so mean, let's talk about yeah. that for a second. So you say you were shocked by the obvious signs of um, a community that's, that's 
in the throes of addiction. Um, you grew up here, you know, 30, 30, you grew up in the city. Yeah, I, well, I was first in Wheatland and then Atkins Avenue, and then we moved to Strasburg when I was in high school. So, so just, we haven't said this, you're, you're Michael Diebert. Yes. No, you haven't, you <laughs> shouldn't introduce you because yeah. we haven't. Um, and um, what was this city like? Uh, like, you, you saw it through younger eyes, um, but how did you grow up? I know your father's a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had your own sort of experience, obviously different from the one you're having now. So, like, compare those two periods of time and your experience. Uh, I mean, when I was young, you know, and we're talking about the time when I was in high school. I mean, it was, I would say, fairly normal in the sense of my dad was a cop beat cop in Pennsylvania, in Lancaster. My mom was a secretary at a doctor's office. They split up when I was 15. Um, like, I played in punk bands when I was a kid, guitar and stuff. And, and back in the day, you know, it was... I used to have to order or, or search out... Sometimes it stands, which still exists, this record store, this vinyl record store, you know, whatever the first Damned album or something like that, which then was much more exotic because you couldn't just, like, listen to it online. I mean, this was, like, the first time you were hearing it, was holding it in your hands. And uh, so I guess, uh, you know, I I grew up here writing but also loving music and playing music. And uh, I loved British punk music. I loved reggae from a very young age. Um, Kind of then started getting into more Latin and Brazilian music kind of as I went to college. so, but I, I felt that this city at the time, and even still to some degree, I mean, you see a lot of uh, similarities between kind of a, a city and maybe the north of England or something like that, even down to the fact that it's all red brick yeah. everywhere. I mean, it really aesthetically looks looks very similar. So, yeah, and it just was, uh, I mean, Robert Maplethorpe, who grew up in Floral Park, Queens, had a great quote about Floral Park, which he said it was a great place to grow up and that it was a great place to leave. And I felt a bit the same about uh, Lancaster. Although I have, you know, lots of friends and family who stayed here and really like it and are very, uh, you know, happy and stuff. So, but I think, uh, you know, a couple of things have, have helped Lancaster's kind of tentative regeneration. Um, one of which is that, you know, it's on a direct train line to Philly and New York, which are very easy to get to. Um, it... Uh, it's, it's, it's positioned geographically on the other side of the Susquehanna River and makes it a lot closer to, say, those places than York or something like that. Um, Harrisburg. Yeah, Harrisburg. I mean, and you definitely notice uh, the difference. I, I would say you have a lot of kind of refugees from Philly and D.C. and New York here uh, that I've run into since I've been here because here you can come and buy a house for, like, virtually nothing. And, and more and more from Brooklyn, yeah. like Manhattan and Brooklyn are coming in droves. Absolutely. And, you know, you can have... Uh, you know, a nice house for very little money. Schools are pretty okay. I mean, you know, you have, uh, you know, a a relatively low level of crime, I mean, compared to some other places I've lived. So, uh, yeah, it's, and one thing here, I think it's interesting. It's, it's a a lot of the issues that are present here, whether it's um, the cities kind of rebelling against the power in Washington currently, whether it's um, poverty, whether it's opioid addiction and stuff. It's, it's like, you know, very much uh, those are present on the national stage, mm-hmm. but they're concentrated here in a pretty vivid way, I would say. Okay, so you love it, but, you know, in, in, in Maplethorpe's, <laughs> in the same Maplethorpe vein, you have to go. Uh, and so where do you go? What do you seek out and why? Well, the first time I went to Haiti was in 1997, and I did it at the time when I was, I mean, I write fiction also and used to write poetry, and I did it as a, you know, as a fiction writer, basically, just because it was a place I always wanted to see. And, uh, you know, I went there and, was really captivated by the place and the people and the history 
and kept going back. And eventually, in 2000, there were these disputed uh, parliamentary elections, and that's when I kind of uh, started my first uh, wrote my first article about them um, for Salon, at which uh, actually Jake Tapper at the time was the editor, which Ooh, is funny. That's yeah, funny. he's now on CNN. But one of the things that draws me to places is is, is maybe there are places that often get underreported or perhaps not reported with the kind of depth that I would like to see. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, in, in Haiti, for example, I mean, I think there are lots of foreign reporters who go down there and paint the place in really garish primary colors and broad brushstrokes and, and from often from a very kind of ideological perspective. I mean, um, me, I always felt like a, the role of a journalist was to assess what you're seeing on the ground, to talk to a lot of people on the ground and to form your opinion from that not to go down with ideology that you then try and prove, you know. You have been critical of some of the elder statesmen of the sort of American intellectual uh, cadre. Sure. Specifically Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, and Goodman, um, you know, Danny Glover. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're... For saying that yeah. from on high they've made these pronouncements yeah. about these places and yeah. having never really spent, you know, a significant amount of time there. Yeah, and not having seen... I mean, the fraying of a democratic coalition into something horrible is nothing particular to Haiti. I mean, that's happened all over the world. I mean, look what's going on in uh, Hungary right now with Viktor Orban, who was one of the, you know, one of the guys leading leading lights against communism when it collapsed in the late 80s, early 90s, and now is a grotesque parody of a dictator. I mean, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing in, in, in Haiti, the problems in Haiti are so structural that they go beyond personalities. They go beyond one person or one political party even. And all sides of the political equation benefit from impunity. It's something that's like self-reinforcing. So if Duvalier doesn't go to jail, that means Aristide doesn't go to jail. That means Prevert and Martelli don't go to jail. So they all have a stake in perpetuating that. Mm. And though there are decent and honorable public servants, I think, um, they're, they're up against so much. I mean, the pressures are so great that they are, the system rejects them, basically. And, it, and, you know, so you have a, a situation where there are lots of decent uh, civil society. I mean, Haiti has a very vibrant civil society of, of different groups and different organizations. But, you know, their ability to truly impact uh, policy is fairly negligible still, unfortunately, I would say, in a lot of ways, despite all the good work they do. Um, if you go to a country like Mexico, for example, which I've also worked in a lot, I, I feel like a lot of journalists... I mean, the vice news kind of phenomenon, which I hate, which is that, you know, they have this necro-romantic kind of fascination with guns and who's the narco and, oh, they cut this guy's head off, which is, I don't really care about that. I mean, what I care about are, you know, okay, what is the system that keeps that going, that keeps the drug violence going, that keeps uh, the money coming in? And, you know, if you turn over a rock, it's not very hard to find, you know, who's laundering money? Wells Fargo's laundering the money of the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel. Bank of America's doing it. Um, there's a huge private prison industry in the United States that bankrolls political campaigns that has a, a stake in having harsh drug sentences so they can get more inmates and get more money. I mean, um, Obama, the Obama administration was interested actually in rolling back the yeah. private prisons, but now we're yeah. seeing a, yeah. uh, with Jeff Sessions, who may yeah. be out on his ear very soon, yeah. uh, we're seeing a, a perpetuation of that. Well, and the system. firearms industry, too. I mean, because a lot of those, I mean, I write it in my book about Mexico and the Shadow of St. Death. There's, uh, you know, a lot of the firearms that took place in various massacres and assaults in Mexico. You can trace them back to gun dealers in Texas, in Arizona, in these states with these really lax gun laws in the United States. So the 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 kind of default portrayal as Mexicans, as, you know, narco-savages, I mean, it exculpates the, the U.S. in a way that I'm really not comfortable with. 
um, to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 going to Congo. I mean, Congo is a place that has been, you know, raped and savaged, uh, first by the Belgians, then the Americans had a hand in, you know, uh, the overthrow and murder of Lumumba, who's the first uh, prime minister of Congo. You know, throughout the '90s and 2000s, uh, Paul Kagame and the Rwandans, you know, did the most ghastly. Crimes in Eastern Congo. At the same time, he was being feted as like kind of the new breed of African leader, somebody who should be admired. And there are people who are still on his groupie bandwagon, you know, including famous journalists who you read from. Uh, and I think that's a re- that's a real problem. I mean, a lot of times I think journalists and so-called intellectuals who aren't on the ground all the time, they they see a first image of somebody and their mind is frozen in it forever. Like whether it's Aristide or Kagame or whoever, um, you know. And I mean. The, the situation in Mexico is a, is a little, I would say, better in the sense of there. I think I, th- I think there's some Mexican intellectuals who have more of a maybe a, a soapbox in the United States in the English language media, like Enrique Kraus is translated and published in the New York Times a lot. And whereas you know Lionel Trujillo and Gary Victor from Haiti really aren't as much, which is a, is a real shame because I think people would learn a lot from reading what people like that have to say. So I was actually anticipating my next question, which is like, who should people be reading if you don't want to get this sort of whitewashed neoliberal perspective yeah. on, on on these places? And and you know, most people, of course, if we're being honest, don't know what's going on in Congo. Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you the Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Congo in yeah. general. Like they, you know, there's like certainly not Haiti. Although I think there was like a renewed sort of guilt-based interest in Haiti after the the major earthquake. Um, in, what was it, 2010? Yeah. Well, I would think people would be interested in hearing about what life was like just living day to day in places where people don't often go. Uh, I mean, my, my time when I was living in Haiti was a bit different than now because now Haiti, like so much of the world, is a lot much more kind of connected to the rest of the world. Back then it was, you know, I had dial-up internet in Haiti, let's put it that way. I, I, I was the correspondent for Reuters there for a couple of years, and Reuters paid me what, what now I think for freelancers would be like an enormous sum. But at the time, it was fine, but I, I couldn't afford to like buy a car, for example. So since I didn't have a car, I had to take uh, public taxis and tap-taps everywhere. Tap-taps are what they call the shared camionettes. And that was great practice both for Creole, because people always were kind of interested to talk when I got in the car, and also in terms of seeing at a ground level what people's day-to-day lives were like and what they were talking about. And, you know, you certainly got uh, a feeling of, wow, people here have such a struggle just to get from one day to the next. I mean, that an enormous struggle that I can barely comprehend just to keep from starving, you know, and... Uh, you were living in Port-au-Prince? Yeah, I was living... I had a place in a neighborhood in Port-au-Prince called Paco, uh, which I think you would call a kind of a middle-class neighborhood. Um, and I also had a little beach house in a town called Timoyage outside of a town called Chacmel, a, a house, a hut, basically, which was wonderful. I mean, after getting shot at and tear-gassed, I would go to... To Jacmel, and you would crest these mountains and see it glittering like a jewel in the ocean. And then I would get a you know moto. I would get out of the tap tap and get a moto to Timoyage, and I would sit there for a weekend and read books in a hammock and swim in the Caribbean and eat lobster and lambi, which is conch, you know, stuff I could never afford to do here. Um, but the, the the life in the city and the life in the countryside of Haiti, I would say, is very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's you know, they, a lot of Haitians refer to it as the Republic of Port-au-Prince because it's so different from you know the life of say a peasant in the Plateau Central of the Ortibonite. Um, uh, 
the, the, one of the juxtaposition, one of the strange things, of course, is that, you know, in Haiti, you have what, what you would say is, you know, all this economic difficulty, but the culture is produced at an incredibly high level, whether it's literature or music, cinema, visual art is, is, is fantastic. And, you know, and also, you know, voodoo, which is in itself, it's a religion, of course, but it's also kind of in some ways, I think, a, an artistic expression of the experience of dispossessed Africans in, in the Caribbean. And it's great. I mean, it's I, everyone should go to voodoo ceremonies when they can. I mean, the music Des- is great. Descri- describe one. Uh, okay, so there was a there was a voodoo priest that I used to go to in a neighborhood called Mariani, which is in the south of Port-au-Prince. His name was T. Poppy, and uh, he would you know you would go in. Um, there were the onsies, which are kind of the devotees who do a lot of dance, dancing and, and things like that. And there would be a lot of drumming. Um, food would be served. Sometimes there would be a sacrifice of a goat or something like that. Um, when I went to the big voodoo pilgrimages, like Souvenance in the Artibonite, that then you would have a bull sacrificed, which is something I always found incredibly difficult to watch, which is really hypocritical because I'm not a vegetarian, but still, there was something about it. The, the bull tied to the tree and knowing that it was going to be killed. and you know, so. But, uh, I mean, I think people who don't take an interest in, in voodoo in Haiti. It, it's a politically significant religion as well. Um, How so? Uh, there are ancillary effects of voodoo, I think, in, in terms of the worldview of politics, in terms of uh, organi- organizing good and bad loa spirits, you know, to do your bidding or pleading with them to do bidding. Um, and also, I would say, linked in with that, to understand the political culture of Haiti, it's important to look back at like Jacobin France as well, which I think is a lot. Is the part that often gets missed. People often think that the, you know, the political culture of Haiti is somehow exclusively African derived, as if that explains all the problems. But if you look at the intriguing and backstabbing and you know sanguinary history of, of France in the era when Haiti was born, I think there's a lot of echoes in Haiti still today of that. Um, you can't forget also that when Haiti declared its independence in 1804, I mean. All of the countries practically in the Western Hemisphere, especially the United States, had economies based on slavery, so they weren't exactly embracing them with open arms, you know, at the time. Well, I mean, it became the thing to be afraid of, and it's largely why the Louisiana Purchase happened. Um, You know, you get Napoleon has to move all his 50,000 men um, from there back to Haiti to put down this rebellion, and then... Yeah, they get to buy it for like $15 million. Well, yeah, and after and after the Haitian Revolution, the population of New Orleans doubled largely with people arriving right. from Haiti, you know, slave owners and whatnot right. who left. Right, um, So I think that's really important, too. And if you look at the, you know, the history of, of, of things in the United States, like uh, the Nat Turner Rebellion or Denmark VC in, in Charleston, uh, Haiti, the example of Haiti, was one was one that the colonialists were very uh, afraid of. They were, and it's it, it's an example. I just read a book that explains this pretty pretty uh, extensively. That you get the expansion of slavery deliberately, so you don't have the Haitian problem in that you don't have this proliferation of slaves who overtake the colonial population. Yeah. So you expand and expand and expand, and you go force marshes, and so they don't have this like swelling of the slave population yeah. in order to get to the point where you can rebel. Um, and that's why they were so hell bent on expanding slavery and expanding slave states, and which you know infiltrates legislation yeah. for half a century. And I think the most one of the most interesting and sadly unstudied parts of American history is the history of bleeding Kansas, where yeah. all of this yeah. kind of played out. And I become I, obsessed with John Brown. Yeah, he is an amazing figure. I mean, for good and for bad, he's an amazing figure. But he, he, he like the 
the, the story of Bleeding Kansas, I saw a historian once say something along the lines of like, well, this was supposed to be the child that, that brought the country together, but in fact it was the child that broke the country apart because yeah. it was a mini civil war. Right. And, you know, we're sitting in a city um, where the last members of the Conestoga tribe were massacred in the street. The guy who, the coroner who performed the autopsies on them, his grave is right over there. But the, the fact that, you know, you look at a thing like Bleeding Kansas and you look throughout the United States history and there has always been this vein of violent white supremacy here as much as we like to tell ourselves that it doesn't exist. And that's something that you see with Trump now in the United States. I mean, I'm a fierce critic of him and very vocal about it. And, you know, periodically on Twitter, some right-wing fringe nut job will re respond to me or something and then the troll armies will come out. And it's always... I, can I swear on this? I don't know. Absolutely yeah, okay, you can. And they pillar yeah. you for being a Jew. Yeah, okay, yeah. No, they're like, you Jew motherfucker, we're <laughs> going to kill you. And even though I'm not Jewish, which is hardly the point, obviously. But, I mean... <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I love that yeah. for some reason. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, you know, pictures of houses I they think I used to live at and stuff, that they're going to come get me. And, like, as if that scares me, you know, after dealing with the Gulf Cartel and people like that. But, but We have that, to talk about that. Yeah, but that still exists here. And that is that is a... Uh, school of thought in American political life that has been really profoundly energized by the Trump uh, presidency and it's something that I think any good person of conscience has to be in a struggle to the death to defeat. Let's go back, let's go back to your, um, your life on the ground as a journalist, which isn't over by any stretch. Um, this, is, this, this is a, 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 I guess, just like a hiatus that you're taking. A little respite. Um, you go from Haiti to where? Uh, I was in Haiti. I went to Guatemala. Then stuff started happening in Haiti again, so I went back there. Then I went back and was based in New York for two years again uh, in Astoria. And then I moved from there to Paris, from Paris to Congo, Congo to Australia. You, you, you have gotten yourself in some, in some scrapes just to like, witness them and to experience them as a person on the ground, right? You, the idea is not to be kind of hovering above in a drone, no. but to be down on the street and say, not... Like, oh, look at these scars, I'm so heroic, no. but rather, like, I saw this with my own eyes. No, and I, 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 if there's one kind of school of narrative that I really loathe, it's the whole white, tired hero coming back, I alone escaped to tell thee bullshit, uh, which is really... as late your le What's your least favorite example, or your favorite example of that? My least favorite example of that? I mean, I probably shouldn't name any names, but... I don't think people will... I mean, people who follow my Twitter feed and stuff, I don't, I don't think they'll have a hard time piecing it together. But I, actually, I mean, I, without naming a name, I mean, like, Vice is an example of that, I would say, which is really obscene, is the word I would use. I mean, you know, you go to these countries that are having really serious problems, and rather discuss them, it's just, oh, I'm, it's dangerous, I'm scared. Look at me, the white journalist. I'm like, like, I don't give a shit, like, I don't give a shit about you. I could sit and talk to some asshole like you at the neighborhood bar. I don't need to watch TV. I mean, like, what are the, what's going on with the people? You know, what do the people think? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that you have to be in the mix as a journalist if you're covering what I was covering, which is a popular rebellion against a, a, a one a democratic icon who had decided he wasn't beholden to the rules of democracy in Haiti. Is there a you, yeah, you can't do that from the hotel bar. You have to be in the street, you know, and that means sometimes putting yourself in situations that can get very dicey, but if you are not comfortable doing that, you need to get another job, I would say. Um, I would say the place I was most uh, concerned about my physical safety was uh, Mexico particularly Tamaulipas and Veracruz, because they're, um, you know, the the rule of law has broken down to such an extent, while at the same time the places maintain a kind of sheen of normalcy. I mean, you go to 
northern Mexico, and there are you know WalMarts and Starbucks and all kinds of normal kind of looking things. And but at the same time, you know, in Tamaulipas, I mean, the the state police are the Gulf Cartel basically, and the various factions of it now. Now it's even worse because what used to be kind of dominant groups, the Cartel de Sinaloa, Cartel de Golfo. Um, uh, you know, the Los Zetas have now fractured into all these little microgroups. So in, in Reynosa, which is a place where I was held at gunpoint by, by Sicarios, I mean, now it's like every couple of blocks is owned by another group of people. And they're using gunmen who are not necessarily even trained police officers, but kids now. And that's much scarier, I think. So what I realize is um, these are all things that you've experienced and, and are immersed in. It may be the case that people may have kind of like a, a fleeting understanding of, or, you know, as you said earlier, people just think of Mexico as being one big drug cartel anyway. Obviously, that's not the case. But, like, would you be willing to spend, like, two or three minutes or five minutes sort of sketching out the bigger, and you do this in the book, the bigger story or a sort of um, microcosmic example of the larger story so that people can understand, like, you know, in, in, in a little bit more uh, in a, bit of a little bit more clearer terms what the situation is and what you were kind of yeah. seeking out and so, why you wound up out at so, gunpoint. So maybe my favorite state in Mexico is a state on the Gulf Coast called Veracruz, um, which is very interesting. It was actually the, the site of the first independent slave community in the Western Hemisphere by Gaspar Yanga. This is in the 1500s. This is before Haiti. Um, and, you know, you still have, if you listen to the music from that state and stuff, you still can hear some faint echoes of Africa in it. Uh, it is an Im- immensely beautiful state capital, Jalapa, which is in the mountains, um, great coffee, and it has this rollicking uh, sea town, Veracruz City, which is has a carnival every year, has terrific seafood, has a very Caribbean vibe to it. Um, it is also It was also one of the bastions of Los Zetas, who were, you know, the, the came to prominence first as kind of contract uh, enforcers for the Gulf Cartel and then broke off on their own in 2010 and then became deadly enemies with the Gulf Cartel. Um, m- m- Veracruz has, I mean, the, it, it leads, I think, Mexico in terms of the amount of journalists who have been killed there. Um, and what one happens all the time, and even a young guy who flew f- fled to Mexico City to escape kind of the what was going on was found there and killed along with a couple of other people in a neighborhood called Navarte. But when I was researching the, my book there, I was speaking to a whole bunch of different people in, in Jalapa, and I'll never forget, uh, you know, and this I kind of think illuminates the situation on the ground in Mexico. I was talking to someone involved in the state government who was talking about, you know, the connections between cartels and government officials and police and whatnot, and I asked this person, how deep were the uh, links between then-current governor, now-imprisoned ex-governor Javier Duarte and Los Zetas? And the person responded to me by saying, he is their slave. And I think that really d- describes a whole bunch of, uh, you know, the, the dynamic on the ground in Mexico. And I think also that the pre-coming back to power, Enrique Peña Nieto, and the pre-coming back to power was the worst thing that could happen for the country. Because uh, the pre are a, a corrupt, occult political machine that rivals, I mean, man, Lavalas and Haiti thought they were, they were amateurs compared to, I mean, pre, it was like, you know, nursery school time, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the, though I'm not a big fan of the PAN or the, the, you know, the PRD, the, the, the opposition party in, um, in Mexico, I mean, I think either one of them at least would have had a little bit of a window of an opportunity for things to maybe inch forward a little bit, but like I said, the thing, I guess, that 
bothers me most is is the the lack of awareness of the culpability of Americans in the violence in Mexico. And another thing that's important is a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys were famous for the the kind of most egregious massacres in Mexico, whether it's La Barbie um, or um, you know Z40 from the the Zetas or the Mas Loco from uh, La Familia in Michoacan. These guys either were born or grew up in the United States. I mean, you know, Miguel Trevino, Z40, he grew up largely in Laredo, Texas, and Dallas. So his family all over Dallas. La Barbie grew up in in, in, in Laredo. Um, uh, you know, La, um, uh, El Mas Loco lived in uh, California for like three decades or something like that. So this idea somehow, and, and it gets back into also, you know, I mean, Trump's favorite uh, kind of whipping boy in terms of uh, violence of Latin America is the MS-13 gang. Now, a lot of people seem not to realize that the MS, Mara Salvatrucha, Barrio de Esiocho, they were formed in the United States. They weren't formed in Mexico. They were formed in Los Angeles. The Esiocho is 18th Street in Los Angeles. And they were formed by the kids of people who had fled the Civil Wars in Central America in the 1980s. And they came to, you know, L.A., California, huge gang culture. They were getting beaten up all the time. And so they formed these clicas. And then these kids who were not U.S. citizens would commit some crime and be sent back to El Salvador or Guatemala, Honduras. And they had kind of a Ph.D. in street gangsterism from their time in the United States. And, of course, then it became more complicated. I mean, you had ex-combatants of the FMLNA and um, the, you know, the, the, the right-wing military in El Salvador who would also come in and made them more professional, so to speak. And all of these guys are dead, long dead now. Um, but, you know, I mean, the fact that people often talk about MS-13 as an import gets the whole history of how the gang was formed in the first place. And I think, you know, Americans could do well with a little bit of looking in the mirror when it comes to these things, whether it's, uh, you know, drug violence in Mexico or the, the MS-13 in Long Island. So the culpability is on Americans because of poverty? Well, not exclusively on Americans, I would say. I mean, obviously, you know, these countries have to sort their own stuff as well. But, but that we are a violent country. You know, and uh, we have a lot of great, uh, you know, advantages and opportunities, but we're a profoundly violent country and a country that has a lot of, I would say, strange ideas, uh, whether it's about guns or about uh, immigration or about race. Or I, think, about, I think about this a lot. Do you have a thought as to why we are so disproportionately violent as a nation? I mean, we were founded on genocide and keeping the entire black race enslaved for almost 300 years. And so. then denying all of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that that's a, a formulation or an equation for internal violence. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, the image of kind of one of the images of the states of the kind of, you know, the cowboy, the lone guy. And I'm like, well, you know, that, that image is also is based on genocide. It really is. It'd be like having the lone SS officer, you know, bravely walking through the streets of Prague or something like that. And uh, I think that's something we still haven't come to terms with. And I... You know, being here, as I said, where the last members of the Conestoga tribe were massacred, it's it, it's actually feet from my front door. Um, is an old Paxton boys, yeah, which were a white white racist gang from Central Pennsylvania. You know, that came here to kill them. Um, is something that makes me think about that more here than I do some other places. I would think. Um, so, where is next? I mean, if this is just sort of a short stop to kind of, I don't know, reload or yeah. maybe just kind of... Recharge. Recharge. Um, reload, speaking of violence. Um, what's next? And um, Or maybe you don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure exactly. I would like to write an article or two about the situation in Lancaster right now. 
I mean, I have two kind of competing uh, tendencies in my head. One of which is, uh, you know, I love Europe in some ways. I mean, I love Paris, I love Barcelona, but I also really like Latin America. And the warmth and, you know, kind of welcoming of Latin America is hard to find elsewhere. Um, whether it's, you know, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, or Colombia. Going to keep doing what I'm doing because it seems to be pissing off all the right people. Come on, you're so good now, yeah, because it feels so Michael Dybert and I recorded this conversation in late July, well before the events in Charlottesville. But as good journalists are apt to do, he seemed to anticipate them and the upsurge in violence and violent language. He also gives me a little space here to rip on media detritus like Vice, which clearly he's no fan of and which I'm actually not in any position to substantially critique. But instead, on the one now indecently popular video they posted on Charlottesville, lucky for them being in the right place at the right time, because that's what it's about. Not essential journalism on topics of terrific import, but ratings. What an exploitation situation that was. To give a degenerate cretin like Chris Cantwell an open mic for 22 minutes was appalling. The proper response to jingoistic, epithet-laden nonsense like that is to ignore it. It's what we and the media should have been doing since day one with Trump and the like. Bullies love the pulpit, and they regularly get them because it makes news. But if it weren't news, if it weren't capturing eyeballs at alarming rates, then assholes like Cantwell and David Duke would be shouting into the abyss. To me, that would be the greatest justice, to be unknown and unheard. When given the choice to have a long, anonymous life or a short, heroic one, Achilles doesn't hesitate. And one of Dante's cleverest punishment for the sinners in his inferno is reserved for Pierre de Lavigne, who once had Frederick the Great's ear, but now, because he's committed suicide, has traded arrogance for anonymity. But our society doesn't work that way. In fact, it's entirely upside down, like Dante's profane reimagining of Plato's tripartite soul. The triangle, wherein appetite far outweighs reason, and the whole thing is pitched on its head in dangerous, untenable fashion. Vice's story on Charlottesville is not journalism. It's more of what Michael Dybert describes here with great disdain, the sensationalist orgy born of ceremoniously tossing oneself into the mouth of the lion. I don't really see our media conglomeration suddenly changing its tune, suddenly reversing its field and deciding, well, now we're going to do some real journalism. Now that we have ratings, and now that people's eyeballs are glued to our screens and we have clickbait aplenty, we're going to actually report on things in a, in a balanced and meaningful way. I simply don't see that happening, especially in the age of Trump. But I guess I think it's partially my job to point out people who are actually telling those kinds of stories in measured, thoughtful, compassionate ways. They are out there. You just have to look a little bit harder than you used to. 
I invite you to check out some of Michael Dybert's work. Michael Dybert, the journalist on the move, although he is temporarily grounded here in Lancaster. You'll see him around walking his very sweet, stubborn dog. I will link to a few of his recent articles, including a most recent one on the Lancaster Against Pipelines movement as it goes into its most crucial stages in its fight against the Williams Partners and the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline. You can also find him on Twitter, at Michael C. Dibert. Thanks again for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. You can find episodes of What We Will Abide on the What We Will Abide Facebook page, as well as on my website, samschindler.com. Feel free to tweet at me, at samschindler43. And you can leave a review on iTunes. That helps newer listeners find the show. The music you're hearing is original composition by Ari Gold, who, although he's way out in Oregon, is a fan of the show and, in my mind, an honorary Lancaster local. And I guess one final programming note. The school year has begun, and the Stone Independent High School has commenced its inaugural year, and I'm back to teaching full-time. This doesn't mean that what we will abide will go away. Rather, it might take on a bit of a different tone. I can't say for sure what that will be, and I can't say for sure that it'll actually happen, but fair warning. I am teaching a podcasting class, and so you might hear a few new, fresh, different voices in the near future when the next few What We Will Abide episodes hit the air. Again, I really appreciate your support, and thanks for listening. Never left, it's like you never left. Uh 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 uh.